Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, and the word of the Lord declares, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name, who he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the life-giving word of the Lord. The ancient church father, Augustine of Hippo, once wrote, Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, the truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Today, um, we are wrapping up this series titled, God, Who Is He? And the reason that why we've been in this series is that we have been exploring this question, who is God? And it's a question that's simple enough to, an- to ask, but it is not simple to answer because as we said, just about every one of us has an opinion about who God is. And for most of us, the idea of, of God is influenced by the Bible a little, right? But it's also influenced a lot by our culture and our upbringing, even our own emotions and feelings. We have all seemed to have our own picture of God. And it's been my hope that through this series that your perspective about God has grown. That God has become bigger than the limits that you have placed upon him. It's been my hope that your view of God has grown beyond the limited image that you have of God that you've developed over your lifetime. I pray that the picture of God that you have is no longer this old man with a long white beard. I pray that that your picture of God is not simply someone who's there whenever you want him to be, like your cosmic butler or a magic sky daddy who's there to take care of every one of your whims. I pray that your perspective of God isn't some disinterested deity who has little to do with us in this everyday world. I pray that your view of God has grown. I pray that your view of God actually leaps beyond the limits of your imagination. Because as we talked about, God is eternal. He is existence itself. God simply is. He has no beginning. He has no ending. He, he never changes. 
God is also holy, which means he is both pure and completely set apart from us. He is morally perfect and completely different than his creation, which means he's the most important and the most valuable person and idea and reality in all the universe. God is holy. But God is also transcendent, which means he's greater than and outside of both time and space. God transcends or is bigger than the universe, which means he is by definition bigger than our imagination. God is beyond what we can fully understand about him because he's transcendent. But at the same time, we talked about that God is also imminent. Not only does God transcend the universe, but he is at the same time present in the universe. That God is everywhere in the universe. Which means that God is also very near to us. He's intimate with us. He knows us personally and he chooses to reveal himself to us. And then as we talked about, God is also triune. God is a trinity. Father, Spirit, Son, our God is three in one. God is one in essence and three in persons. And there are people that will say that doesn't make any sense. And when they say things like that, I remind them that God is beyond your imaginations. He's, supposed, he's not supposed to completely make sense. He's not supposed to fit within the confines of your imagination. If you worship a God that you fully understand, you do not worship the one true God. You worship something else. And then we talked about that God, the fact that God is love. That's what he is by his very nature. Love is who he is and it defines all that he does. It was because of his love that he created the universe. It's because of his love that he created us. It's because of his love that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. Love is what makes God, God. But then we talked about also that God is also just He's a God of justice. God is morally pure. He's completely righteous, which means he must be in his nature just. Justice is a part of his nature like love is. It's one of his attributes, just like love is. Justice is what makes God, God, just like love does. And what that means is God is both love and justice. He is both grace and wrath. He is both mercy and anger. You can't have one without the other. Because if you remember... True love requires justice, and true justice requires love. Because love without justice is empty sentimentality. But justice without love is simply brutality. So for God to be God, and for him to be either one of these things, he must be both love and justice. And as we said, we see that picture on the cross. It is God's justice and his love that sent Jesus to the cross for us. And so hopefully in this series to this point, your perspective of God has grown. Because make no mistake, my goal has been to give you a bigger and a greater view of God. It has been my goal to give you a higher view of God. Because my conviction is one is that one of the greatest deficiencies in the church is not that people don't believe in God. It's just they just don't have a high enough view of God. Their picture of God is way too small. As Steve Lawson says, that a high view of God leads to a humble view of self. And a low view of God leads to a haunty view of self. I would say that a high view of God leads to a healthier view of self. And a low view of God leads to a destructive view of self. And so it's been my goal to give you, through this series, a bigger and a higher view of God. My heart's desire is to, be, is to bring you face to face with the glory and the majesty and the awesomeness and the sheer magnificence of who God is really is 
I wanted to bring you a place where that you're spellbound with wonder at God's infiniteness and his otherness and his sheer transcendence. I wanted you to come and see how big God is. And then in that sense of scale, how small you are by comparison. And that you would come to him to that place where with your heart and your mind, you would be moved to worship and glorify him. Because the truth is, that great and awesome and incredible God, that God who transcends the universe, that God that leaps beyond the limits of your own imagination, that God created you. That God knows you personally. He knows your name. He knows everything there is to know about you, every thought, every deed, everything. And that great and glorious God not only created you and knows you, but he also loves you individually. That knowledge should cause you to both tremble with fear and shout with great joy. The almighty creator of all things, the God of love, the God of justice, the God of unending grace, the God of overwhelming wrath knows you inside and out and loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. That's why he was sent to the earth for you. That should inspire within you both a deep love for God. And at the same time, it should inspire a reverential fear of him as well. Because if your view of God does not cause you to both love him and fear him at the same time, then your view of God is way too small. And I would invite you to listen to these conversations all over again. In fact, if you've missed any part of this series, I want, you to, I want to encourage you to take some time to listen to what you missed. You can do that by going to the SoundCloud page or our church website. The information's in your bulletin. But the point is, God is greater than our imagination. He's bigger than the limits of our minds. God will not fully fit within the box of your imagination. And of all, and all of these things we've talked about, all these subjects we've covered will help us to see that. How big and unfathomable and unimaginable God is. We have spent a lot of time expanding our understanding of how big God is. But today, I want to wrap this series up by spending some time to talk about how close God is. How near and personal and intimate God is. That for all of God's bigness, for all of his transcendence and all of his holiness... And for all of his indescribableness, God is very near to us and also very familiar to us. Because God created us for a relationship with him. We were built to connect with him. We were created in his image so that we can know him and experience him. That's the picture that we have in the Garden of Eden. God creating Adam and Eve. And the two of them literally walking with God, talking with God, knowing him, enjoying him, right? Experiencing him in closeness and intimacy. Their best friend, think about this, their best friend was literally God. That's what we were created for. As big as God is, as awesome as he is, as fear-inducing as he is, we were created to have an up-close, personal, intimate relationship with that God. But as we know, that relationship was severed. The intimacy was destroyed. That connection was lost. Adam and Eve, in their ingratitude, chose pride over God. They chose themselves over God. 
In fact, look with me to Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, you may, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall only eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The devil makes his appeal to the woman, not by denying that God will take care of them, not by denying that God is good, but rather he insinuated that an intimate, up-close, personal relationship with God is not enough. It's not enough. It was not enough to walk with God. It was not enough to personally know God. The devil convinced her that her relationship with God was not enough to satisfy her. She needed something more is what he, what he told her. And she fell for it. She wanted more, more than God, more than, more than knowing, you know, God personally. She wanted to also know good and evil like God. Instead, she wanted to be like God. Instead of being grateful of this amazing gift of God's very presence, this all-satisfying relationship with God, she desired more. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight for the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. You see, the moment that they, um, they reached for something more than God, they became exposed. They became aware instantly of their sin. They became aware that the entire world had changed. They had rebelled against God's direct command. And now there were unimaginable consequences. Sin and death and shame had entered the world. And now where they once enjoyed God's intimate presence, where they once enjoyed his closeness, they now hid themselves from him. Notice what it says. It says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. The intimate, up-close relationship with God was changed. It was severed. It was lost. And in their shame, they hid themselves from God. Their sin created a barrier between them and God. And ultimately, they were driven out of the presence of the Lord altogether, separated from God. Sin destroyed this intimate, personal connection. You see, the issue is that we were created to have a relationship with God. That's our purpose. That's how we were built. But because of sin, that connection is lost. That relationship is broken, which ultimately means we live these lives of very deep unfulfillment. Because there's still something in us that needs to be fulfilled. That can't be. Because it's broken. We were created for a purpose that can't be realized because it's broken. I once had one of them newfangled cell phones long before they had smartphones. It was one of them uh, Nokia ones, if you guys remember what those guys looked like, right? And it was cool, right? It was nice to have a phone because it had this ability to send and receive phone calls. And that was it, right? I mean, that's what phones were, were for. That's 
It was, it was, that was the purpose, was to communicate with other people on the phone. Right? That was the point of the cell phone. Right? It didn't do anything else. But one day I was in the gym and I was digging around my gym bag and it slipped out and fell and my phone hit the, hit the tile floor. It was really hard. But, but understand, it wasn't like these new, the newer smartphones that had these big screens. You know, there was nothing to crack, really. You know what I mean? It's this big old chunk of plastic hit the ground. But, like, there was no damage to the screen. And so, um, so there was no outward appearance that it was broken. It seemed fine. But then when I tried to use it, right, something was inside of it was broken. Because when I would call people, I would hear them go, hello, hello, hello. And, and, and then, but they couldn't hear me going, hello, hello, you know. They couldn't hear me answer. And so here have this phone that's been created for this purpose that it can't fulfill, right? It looked like a phone, right? It, it functioned with all its features, had all the buttons, right? And all the lights like a phone. But it was broken inside, unable to do what it was designed to do. In essence, it became worthless. It can't function the way that it was designed to function. And that's us. We've been broken because of sin, unable to fulfill our purpose, been unable to live the lives connected to a deep relationship with God. We were built for intimacy with God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism uh, asked this question, what is the, the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is what we were made for. But we can't because we're broken. We were created for a relationship that we can't have. And so because of that, we become Restless. We leave these restless, vain, and unfulfilled lives. That's why we try to fill our lives with everything else, like money and entertainment and power and sex. And, and, and we have these broken appetites. We are continually looking for something in the world to make us feel whole. We're looking for something in the world to dull the pain. We're looking for something to make us feel complete. That's why we turn to addictions, drugs and alcohol and pornography, right? People turn to those things because they're looking for fulfillment. That's why people become codependents. They're looking for purpose and meaning. That's why people sell it for popularity and fame. That's why people do whatever it takes to have fun or have a good time. So they can forget about the pain inside of them. That's why they chase money, even though they know that it's not going to bring happiness. That's why people let themselves go into their lusts of their flesh. They indulge every kind of indecency and sexual immorality because it promises intimacy and connection. Illicit sex and sexual immorality promise to fill the void in us. And the end, that fulfillment is only but a brief moment in time. And the trouble is that it leaves us worse than before because you are even more broken and empty and more disconnected than before. And you feel more guilt and more shame and more hopelessness, which then just sets us people up for, for this, this hopeless spiral of brokenness. Right? Because they will continue to chase after, they will continue to seek this elusive fulfillment that they can't seem to reach, that they just they can sense it, they can almost touch it, they can almost taste it, but they can't have it. This emptiness that you feel, this brokenness you sense, this hole that you in your heart that you can't fill as a reminder that you were created to have a relationship with God. And that relationship is broken. As the, philo- the philosopher uh, puts it, we have all been created with a God-shaped hole in our heart. 
And nothing else on earth is going to fill it. We're all born with this longing, this desire for a relationship with God. But that relationship has been destroyed because of sin. And on our own, we can't fix it. We can't restore it. That is why God came to the earth. That is why Jesus was born. To restore that relationship. To restore that closeness and intimacy with him. That's why Jesus is called Emmanuel. God with us. God came to the earth to be here with us. It's the whole point of the incarnation. God became flesh. God the son became a man. To be with us once again. God became one of us so that we can have this relationship with him again. Look with me to John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the greatest declaration of the divinity of Christ in the Bible. John unashamedly cries out from the beginning of the gospel that Jesus is the Son. He is God himself. Because Jesus is the Word. And John tells us the Word became flesh. We know that Jesus is the Word. And because of that, then we know that Jesus is, in fact, God. But what does that mean? Well, it means all things were made through him. And without him, not anything was made that was made. What this means is that Jesus is the creator of all things. He created it all. Heaven and earth, stars and moon, trees, birds, even you. Jesus created it all. But that also means that he is the one who designed you for a relationship with him. He's the one that created you with his To need this intimate relationship with God. Jesus is the one that made you with a craving for this intimacy with him. In Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. God said. Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. That's Jesus. He's the one who created you. To to be built for this need. He's the one who hardwired you for this connection with him. If anyone is going to restore that relationship. Then it's going to have to be him. Verse 4, it says, and in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus being eternal, Jesus being God, he is eternal. And being eternal, he is existence itself, as we talked about. All things owe their existence to God because he is existence. And because Jesus is existence, he is also life itself. This is important because that means Jesus is the source of all life. All life, physical and spiritual. All life has its origins in Christ. All life begins with him. He is the eternal creator. And more than that, all things find their meaning in Christ. All things find their value in Christ. Your life finds its meaning and ultimately its fulfillment in Christ. He's the source of your existence. He's the source of your life. He's the source of your meaning. He's the source of your value. Which means if you live without a relationship with him, your life ultimately then is meaningless. It's pointless. Which we know. We see it in the world around us. People are chasing everything else in order to, have, to, to, to give their life meaning. They chase everything else, but in the end, they come up short. You never can have enough money. You can never have enough toys. You can never have enough sex. You can never have enough power. You can never have enough friends. You can't drink enough alcohol. You cannot have, you can't do enough drugs. You can't become famous enough. 
You can't ever have a big enough house or fast enough car. There are lots of examples around us of people who try to fill that hole with other things, but they can't. I think one of the most astounding things is like Tom Brady, he's won all those Super Bowls, and he sits there on national television and says, there's something in me that's empty, and there's not one person who would come up to him and tell him, it's because you don't have a relationship with Jesus, bud. There's something in him that's unfulfilled. And how many actors and artists and rich people we've heard taking their own lives, right? They have everything that they could possibly want. To only find out that they were depressed and lonely and filled with deep anxiety. I mean, think of Michael Jackson. If, if, there's, if, there's, a, if there's a clearer example of it, I, I can't see. I mean, he was the king of pop, right? Everybody, practically everybody in the whole world knew who he was, right? And he had so much money, more than he could ever need. He had everything he ever wanted. He had his, his place in Santa Barbara, the, what they, the Never Never Land, with his own amusement park. Everybody knew his name. Everybody wanted to be close to him. Everybody wanted to be his friend. He had the ability to spend millions of dollars on one shopping spree. He was absolutely world famous. And if there was anything to be had, he could have it. But after he died, we find out that he was deeply broken and insecure, lonely and deeply troubled. He needed anesthesia to go to sleep. Not just sleeping pills, but anesthetic. Right? He was lonely. He was a lonely, broken, perverse man. His, his dark secrets are still shocking to people. Police have discovered his depravity is worse than they even imagined. But from one perspective, it seemed that he had everything. But without Christ, you have nothing. Life without Christ is meaningless because he is life. And verse 4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness descended on the world when Adam and Eve sinned. All of creation had been covered in darkness since that time. This darkness is what separates God from man. That's why you cannot find God on your own. Because we're covered in spiritual darkness. That's why there's no such person who ever seeks for God. People will say all the time, well, I'm just seeking God. I'm just looking for God. Churches call themselves seeker-friendly, right? Instead of going out into the world to share the gospel with people, they want to create these environments where they believe that seeker-friendly people, you know, will, will come. They hope that, that people that are somehow on their own seeking God will stumble into these churches, these environments. But the problem is that no one is seeking God. No one. They don't have the ability to. The Bible tells us very clearly that no one seeks for God. Paul says in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. So no one does. We live, this world, we live in this world of darkness then. We're hopeless to live here on our own. We live, but we cannot seek God. We will, we will not seek the source of life. We cannot seek the meaning that belies God. All we can do is fumble around in the darkness trying to fill the emptiness within us. Everything that we can get our hands on is trying to be stuffed in this hole inside of us. But nothing will ever satisfy us. And then left to our own, we will spend the rest of our life doing that. Fumbling around in the darkness. Hopelessly. 
trying to find something to give our life meaning all the way up to the day we die. And then guess what happens? You're judged. And then then there's an even greater darkness and an even greater emptiness. That's what hell is. Eternal separation from the life-giving relationship of God. A permanent emptiness that will never be filled forever and ever and ever and ever. And it's so excruciating and so painful and so awful that it's likened to being eternally consumed with fire. That is our destiny if left on our own to forever pursue fulfillment that will never come. Because we have been disconnected from the life-giving relationship with God. But John says, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, the life, the light of the world, he is the one that shines in the darkness. He's the one that makes himself visible. You see, we don't seek God. Instead, he came to seek us. He came for us. He shines a light in the darkness. Jesus brings his light into the dark world. Notice what John says, the true light which is which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Okay, this is the breathtaking reality. Right? Here we are in the darkness in our sin, unable to seek for God, unable to, to fill this God-shaped void in our hearts with anything that we pursue. And here we are hopelessly disconnected from God, you know, severed from this relationship we were created for with no way to restore it. And Jesus himself comes and takes the initiative to come to us. He came for you. He came into the world for you. You see, we cannot reach up to God. Every religion in the world is an attempt to reach up to God. If you'll just do good enough, you'll just work hard enough, if you'll just sacrifice enough, then you will be able to reach up to God. That's the promise of every religion in the world. It's the promise of Islam. It's the promise of Buddhism. It's the promise of Mormonism. If you will... Jump through these hopes. If you will obey these rules, if you will do these certain rites and rituals, then you'll make it and you can reach up to God. That's a lie. We cannot reach up to God. We cannot ascend high enough to grab hold of him. No, he had to descend all the way down to us to become a light in the darkness. And John continues and he says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. And the scary part of all this is some of us have gotten so used to the darkness that we'll refuse the light. Some of us have bought into the lie that we can, that we can satisfy our cravings in our hearts with other things. That's why people refuse to give up their obsessions for Christ. They refuse to give up their addictions for Christ. They refuse to give up their attractions for Jesus. They believe That all these other things bring satisfaction that they crave. They refuse to give them up. They refuse to let them go to grab a hold of of life. To grab a hold of Christ. They refuse to to let go of the temporary pleasure of sin. So that they can actually have the everlasting joy of Jesus. And it's evident all around us. It's evident in our community. I mean, in fact, my wife once had a friend of hers that that she, she was talking to about Christ. And and this person said, I'm not ready to give up those things in my life to follow him. I I just am not willing to give those things up. If I can't have those things in Jesus, then I don't want Jesus. Is really the message. 
John says in chapter 3, verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. People love that temporary high. People love that temporary fulfillment, they, that, 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 fulfill, that the temporary rush. That they don't, that they, want, they love it so much they don't want to let go, right? They don't want to come out of the darkness into the light. The light comes in the world and they refused him. But as John says to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. For those who actually saw the light, and who did not refuse it, but believed and put their trust in Christ. God gave them something that they never could have on their own before. He gave them the right to become children of God. The right to be restored in a relationship that we were created for. The right to be connected to God. Right? We, we, we've been reconciled to God. Not simply as strangers, right? And not simply as ex-enemies that he tolerates, but as part of his family. That intimate, loving connection that we were created for was lost because of sin. And we were hopeless to fix it on our own, but Christ came himself to restore it, to repair it. He came to fix it. But here's the important thing. It's not just that God came to the earth. It's how he came to the earth. In John chapter four, one fourteen, chapter one, verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus, the eternal word of God didn't just come to the earth. He came to the earth as one of us. He became flesh. God became man. When Jesus came to the earth, being the Son of God, fully divine in his nature, he took upon himself also a human nature. Jesus became fully God and fully man. Another one of those mysteries that we struggle to understand. But the radical truth is important for us to wrap our heads around. Because what we have to realize is salvation is more than just forgiveness of sins. You have to understand what it takes to restore this relationship with God. Restoring a relationship with God isn't simply about getting your sins forgiven. There's more to it than that. You see, not only do we need to be washed clean of our sins, but we also need righteousness. We need to have a right standing with God. We need a righteous life in order to be in a relationship with God. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were both clean and righteous. They were, they were sinless in their actions. Right? And their actions were themselves right. But after they sinned, they became covered in sin and their life became unrighteous. Their works became unrighteous. Salvation is not simply forgiveness of negative sin. It's also the positive of a righteous life. But the problem is we can't live a righteous life. Even if God forgave you, you, you couldn't live the life that's pleasing to God. We will fall short, which is the point of the law, to let us know that we fall short. We can't do it. Right? If God forgave your sins today, tomorrow you would be in sin again. I mean, even sooner than that. If God forgave you this moment, in two moments later you would be in sin again. You need righteousness. And so Christ had to come and become a man to walk in our shoes 
and to do for us what we could not do on our own. He came to became fully man as, as well as God to live a life that we couldn't live. The positive, righteous, perfect life that we can't attain on our own. As Paul tells us, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ came and lived among us. He came and he lived with us. He identified with us. He knew our pain. He knew our hurts. He knew our struggles and our weakness. He knew temptation that we face. But in all of that, he humanly lived this victorious life that we couldn't live. A righteous life before God. Now, the reason why he did that is so that he could exchange that with us for our sin. You see, Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. At the cross, there is an exchange that takes place. Jesus takes upon himself all of our sin, all of our iniquities, and in return, he offers to us his righteous life that he lived as a man on earth. Jesus removed our sins and gives to us his righteousness. Do you understand the power of that? The only way for you to have a relationship with God that you were designed for is to have a righteousness that you can't earn yourself. The only way to restore a relationship with God is to be clothed in a righteousness that you cannot have on your own by your own efforts. The only way to make yourself whole The only way to have a relationship with God that you were built for, the only way to overcome the emptiness of this world is to clothe yourself in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. This righteousness that came to earth as a man to give to you. Jesus, God himself, came to the earth to become flesh and blood. He became a man to live a life for you, to walk beside you, to identify with you, to give you his righteousness that you need, that you can live once again the way that you were designed to live, in unbroken fellowship and intimacy with God. He did all of that for you. Jesus died on the cross to take away all your sins and in return give you the righteousness you need to live in this relationship with God. That's what he did for you. Jesus experienced the holy wrath of God to give that to you. And all you need to do is receive that by faith. As Jesus himself says, repent and believe the gospel. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel. And that relationship, that soul-satisfying relationship that you've been designed for, that you've been looking for, is yours. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be drawn into this forever life-saving relationship with, with God. You will live in this intimate, up-close, personal relationship with God if you'll but put your trust in Jesus Christ. And then when you do that, when you finally do that, As confirmation of that, God, the Holy Spirit, will come and live inside of you. 
He will come to take up residence inside of you. As Paul said, do you not know that you're the temple or temple of the of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? You see, God doesn't leave us alone once we profess faith in him. He takes up residence inside of us. Think about that. Just imagine that. This is something I think sometimes we take for granted, but I want you to think about this. Right? Now that you have a bigger picture of God, eternal, holy, transcendent God, the God that created the entire cosmos will come and take up residence inside of you. You don't have to go anywhere to be in the presence of God. God is with you. You don't have to go to a building to encounter God. God is always with you. He comes to take up residence inside of you. So wherever you go, whatever you do, God is always near to you. Christian, do you even understand the magnitude, magnitude of that? Generations of Jews spent their entire life on pilgrimages back and forth just so they can come and stand near, near the temple. And you, Christian, have become the temple. God resides inside of you. And not only that, he promises to lead you into all truth and to guide you and to strengthen you and to comfort you and to bear witness to you that you are indeed a child of God, that, that you have been once again restored, once again reconciled to this, to, to this life-giving relationship that you were created for. Almighty, eternal, transcendent, holy God who created everything did all that for you. The God that is so big that he can't even fully fit in your imagination. The God that is so great that even the universe itself cannot contain him. That God came to the earth and lived a perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the dead so that he can come and be with you. Yes, you. That's how much he loves you. Let us spend our days worshiping him. And let me pray for you. Father, what a glorious truth it is. Glorious to behold this idea. It like shakes me to my foundation. It tears me to my core, Lord. This understanding that you love me so much that you've done all these things in spite of me to have a relationship with you that a God that I can't even like, I can't even fathom that you've made a point to reach out to us, that made a point to reveal yourself to us, that you have given your word to us, Lord, that you sent Jesus to be the fullness of your revelation, Lord, but then to become a man, to walk this earth and to to live a righteous life that he willingly gives to us and to die on the cross to pay for our sins. Lord, the weight of that, it sometimes is more than I can bear. But Father, let all of us walk in that. Let us let that sink in, Lord. Let that drive us to our knees in worship. Let us, Lord God, never, ever, ever, ever fail to remember the grace that you've had upon us. And help us to see, Lord God, for as big as you are, you still want to be with us. I praise you for that, Lord. 
And I pray, Father, that you would lift up a people in this church who receive that and go out into the world and tell people about this great and glorious God who are willing to talk about the love of Jesus, who are willing to talk about the miracle of the incarnation, who are willing to talk about the resurrection that we'll celebrate even next week. I thank you for that. And I pray your blessing over this entire church. It's in Jesus' name we pray. For listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.